0: Early days of SpaceX and the long road to success. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. From booster landings to astronaut launches, it's hard to imagine a time when SpaceX struggled. But once it seemed like the company may never get off the ground. Eric Berger, journalist and Ars Technica's senior space editor, chronicles the company's desperate first years in his new book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX, starting with SpaceX's founding in 2002 and ending with the successful launch of Falcon 1 in 2008. Berger spoke with some of the earliest employees at SpaceX, along with the ringmaster of SpaceX, founder and chief engineer Elon Musk, revealing the first public glimpse of how the company almost never was, and how the gritty, determined, and sometimes even reckless engineers gave it their all to get SpaceX's first orbital rocket, Falcon 1, off the launch pad. We'll talk to Berger about his reporting and how the early struggles and triumphs of SpaceX are ingrained in the company's DNA. But first, a conversation with Shane Kimbrough, NASA astronaut and commander of SpaceX's Crew-2 mission, about training to launch on the Dragon. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Next month, a crew of four will ride into orbit on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, launching on a six month mission to the International Space Station. It will be the second operational flight of the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft under NASA's Commercial Crew Program. Shane Kimbrough will command that Crew Dragon flight. He's flown to space on the Space Shuttle and Russian Soyuz capsule, making this his third spacecraft. His mission launches in late April from Kennedy Space Center. He joins us now from the Johnson Space Center in Texas. Shane, thanks for speaking with us. My pleasure. You know, being an, an, an audio guy here working in radio, um, it's my understanding that SpaceX has recorded some audio from, from inside the Dragon. I'm wondering if, if you've heard that yet and uh, how that kind of plays into your training uh, for your mission.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we don't get all of those transcripts, unfortunately, because that would be really, really neat for us. Um, they, throughout our training, they have... Uh, Kind of the trainers have input to, um, those kind of tidbits in, in a class or two. Hey, here's some audio you may want to hear during this phase of flight. So uh, it has been integrated nicely. Um, you know, we don't we probably don't need all of it either. So they've, they've done a nice job, I think, of getting the things that they think we really need to hear um, and just kind of interjecting that along the training flow.
0: With a new vehicle like this, I mean, does, is that kind of helpful? Um, kind of putting your mind at ease as to what you're going to experience during this flight?
1: Uh, it certainly it certainly helps just to kind of get you into the, the right mindset for, you know, especially the launch, you know, very dynamic ascent phase of flight. Um, so it's been helpful to hear those things there. Uh, but, you know, just the training in general does does that as well. So it just gets us, the more we do it, the more comfortable we are um, with the vehicle, with the training team, with the mission control teams, and with our crew.
0: Uh, you've flown on both Shuttle and Soyuz. Aside from the lack of buttons, what's been the biggest difference in in the uh, the, the training protocol for Crew Dragon?
1: Um, biggest difference probably is just, I mean, it, it is a clean vehicle like you're alluding to. It's small in a way. It's bigger than Soyuz, of course, but it's small in that it's, um, you, you kind of know where everything is. Um, shuttle was what's much more grand, I think, in that, that regard. But uh, it's been a it's been really great through the training flow, obviously, to uh, get familiar with it. For me, having been to station, I wasn't super concerned about the station training. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I really had to dig into the basics crew dragon training because that that was all new to me and new, new to the whole crew. But I got assigned uh, four or five months later than the rest of the crew, so I had some catching up to do. Uh, but uh, I think we 're there now we 're really ready to go with
0: crew two you 're going to be returning to Florida to launch for this mission. Can you reflect on on what it's like to launch from Florida space coast and and what's the significance of of coming back to the u s once again
1: yeah i'm very excited I, I hope our whole nation is really excited that we have the launch capability now um, that we didn't have for about a decade I um, mean uh, you know we had a great partner with the Russians and that they you know we got to fly with them and got to continue going to the international space Station but uh, for me personally, it's um, really a thrill to get back to the Space Coast and to be launching out of the Kennedy Space Center. Um, I grew up um, a few years of my young young age down just across the river in Mims, Florida, just north of, north of Titusville there. And that's where my grandparents are from. So I have a lot of fond memories personally of that area and looking forward to bringing some, some more excitement back to the Space Coast.
0: How much time have you spent with um, Endeavor, and and are you calling it Endeavor 2.0 or Endeavor Junior? Since that was your previous <laughs> shuttle, uh, how much time yeah. have you spent with it, and and what's been the process like?
1: Yeah, I was very fortunate to be part of the uh, the team that recovered um, this vehicle when Bob and Doug flew on it back in May and uh, recovered it in August, and uh, so I got to see it come out of the water, um, knowing at that time that I was assigned to this mission. So. Um, I, I that's probably the last time I saw it um, we're going to get a chance to see it here in about two weeks when we go down to do our crew inter- uh, crew equipment interface test where we get to actually get in the in the capsule and and put the thing through the ringer and, and push all the buttons and do everything we need so that'll be you know we don't get to, to interact with it very often to answer a question and uh, we're really looking forward to the chance uh, the one chance we have before launch to get in the vehicle here in a couple of weeks.
0: And are you going to nickname it something to uh, differentiate it from shuttle, Endeavor?
1: <laughs> no, no. I like Endeavor. It's great. Um, um, for me, it's obviously very easy to have the same call sign. It's a good problem to have, I guess.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Shane. Best of luck and, and can't wait to see you fly.
1: Thanks, Brendan. Appreciate your time.
0: Kimbrough and his crew are launching on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, getting a ride to space on the company's Falcon 9 rocket. The past few years for SpaceX have been fruitful, from the near mastery of rocket booster recovery to successful human missions. But the early days of SpaceX were defined by engineering challenges, funding struggles, and rocket mishaps. Ars Technica's senior space editor, Eric Berger, has kept a keen reporter's eye on SpaceX's development. And his new book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX, chronicles the early days of SpaceX that defined the company today. Eric Berger, thanks for speaking with us.
2: Well, hi, Brennan. It's nice to talk to you. Eric, you know, with all
0: the SpaceX successes in recent days, I'm thinking from, you know, the mastery of booster landings to recent astronaut launches. It's hard to imagine a time when the company struggled. Take us back to those desperate early days of SpaceX. What was it like?
2: When Elon Musk founded SpaceX in 2002, he was trying to do something that no private company had ever done before. And there were a long list of other rich people with high profiles or rocket scientists with good ideas who had tried to do exactly what he set out to do with, with a liquid-fueled rocket rock to orbit and lowering the cost of you know launching commercial satellites to space. And the fact of the matter is they overcame three launch failures. So the first rocket failed in, in March of 2006, another one failed a year later, and then another one failed again a little more than a year later. And by then he was out of money um, they had the parts for one more rocket in their factory and they had a matter of weeks before they ran out of money and they had to get that last rocket to orbit in uh, September of 2008. So, you know, it's a story of of a company that, although it was founded by a, a multimillionaire and Musk still had limited resources and it it faced a lot of hurdles that companies today don't in the sense that, you know, there were no private companies launching liquid fueled orbital rockets back then. Um, And so, you know, industry didn't know how to really treat them. The military didn't know how to treat them on their launch ranges. NASA was wary of them. And so it was a, it was, it was really pretty desperate, as you say, in trying to, overcome those first three failures
0: in in the book the case is made that spacex's early success was fueled by that early talent that joined the company these are these these scrappy engineers that you know built and developed things at musk's rapid pace and you chronicle some of the hiring in the book where you know elon had a hand in most if not all of these hires I mean, what do we know about how he recognized this talent and, and how he motivated them to move at this unprecedented pace to do things that no private company had ever done before?
2: Yeah, I think one of the, the hidden talents of Elon and really the secrets of the success that SpaceX had was the fact that he was really good at both identifying smart and motivated young people, engineers, um, who had a, had a bit of an entrepreneurial bent – Um, And he was also able to know who among them would be willing to give their all for SpaceX. So the company has a demanding work environment today. But back in the early 2000s, it was an insane work environment. It was longer than 80 hour work weeks. You know, a lot of people told me they would frequently sleep under their desk Or catch a few hours of sleep on the factory floor um, as they, they kept to these schedules. And Musk had a lot to offer them, right? He did push them incredibly hard. He's demanding when things go wrong, he can be a real jerk, right? But he also provided them with resources. And he set these really outlandish goals. You know, from the beginning, they were working towards sending humans to Mars way back in 2002. And he allowed them to go fast. You know, one of the people who who i spoke to was Phil Kasouf, who hadn't even finished college when he hired on at SpaceX and he told me he was you know building circuit boards for the upper stage trying to manage range issues you know working structures you know he, he said there were so many hats we wore we couldn't keep track of them he had gone to to USC and he talked to a friend of his Who worked in the F 35 program and his friend, you know, had a comfortable job, a good life, a big house family, but his whole sole professional responsibility was making sure that a single bolt on the landing gear for the F 35 was procured, you know, and correct. And and that was like the totality of his professional existence. And so SpaceX was a really rich environment and certain engineers could thrive in it and certain certain of them washed out. It was Musk's ability to find those people who would thrive and then motivate them. And, and, and you're right, he was involved with the hiring of the first 3,000 engineers at the company. Like he he interviewed every one of them because he felt like he had to get the right kind of people at the company.
0: Eric, you've had the opportunity to interview Musk multiple times for this book. You've, you've talked to these, these early staffers at SpaceX. What do you see in, in Elon and, and what do these staffers see in Elon?
2: Elon is a larger than life personality, and he has this rare drive that never turns off. He is constantly focused on whatever it is the task at hand. And typically, he likes to take on the most challenging engineering problems first and solve those and then move on to the easier ones. And so he sort of pushes that, has that drive pushing him forward. And the thing that's really unique about him is that there is this constant pressure to move forward as rapidly as possible. Um, And so he's always asking his people to do things faster than they might expect. One of the things I say in the book is he tries to make the impossible possible in terms of timelines in terms of hardware goals and things like that. And that's what there's this meme now of Elon time. And that's because he sort of always says, well, we're going to try to do this with the starship program or this with the Falcon nine program by such and such a date and never happens. And that's because like those dates that he says, those are the internal goals that he's setting for those, those programs to happen. Like way back in September, 28, 2019, when they did the first starship reveal event in South Texas, you know, I was at the factory two weeks before that, and they had not fabricated large pieces of that vehicle yet. He had like a a, a literally hour by hour schedule of hardware that needed to be done and shipped to Texas and assembled to be ready for that event. And it's, it's just like that never stops. It's like that kind of intensity in the company all the time. And so, you know, that burns people out. And so a lot of the early employees at SpaceX lasted, you know, Half a decade or a decade and a lot of them are gone now, some are still there. Um, like Hans Koenigsman is still in an advisory role. Um, Florence Lee in the book is still there. And Gwen Shotwell, of course, is still at the company. But a lot of the other people I talked to, like the launch director, Tim Buzza, some of the founding employees of, of Chris Thompson and Tom Mueller, have have left for a number of years because it just was such a such a rewarding but challenging environment.
0: There's some harrowing moments um, you chronicle in the book, like I won't give too much away, but an engineer uh, diving into a Falcon booster while in the belly of a, a C-17 plane Uh, there's this constant fear of running out of cash. And you reminded me while I was reading this book, this was all happening during the Great Recession when venture capital was all but dried out. I mean, how close was SpaceX coming to failure in these early days?
2: Yeah, they were close on at least three different occasions. The first one, is you referenced, they had the, the first stage for their fourth launch. So this is the one that had to go. They only had weeks to launch it in September of 2008. And so to make their schedule for the first time, instead of shipping the first stage by boat, they they were able to procure a C-17 transport for about half a million dollars from the Department of Defense. Um, and some of the engineers from SpaceX to save money actually rode along in this airplane from the factory in Southern California Um, To the launch site in Kwajalein, which is if you imagine flying to Hawaii and then flying that distance again into the Pacific, is how far Kwajalein is from from the United States. And as they were descending into Honolulu, the first leg of this journey, they hadn't got the pressures quite right, and so the first stage started imploding. And very quickly, they needed to you know release the pressure on the interior of this rocket, or it would have imploded and crumpled. And this was their very last hardware. They had they had nothing else. The company was doomed, and so a, a, an engineer named Zach Don, who has a wonderful story, and I, and I talk a lot about him in the book, just this marvelous enthusiasm for rocketry. Um, he was the guy who was responsible for the first stage propulsion system, and so at thirty five thousand feet, as this rocket is imploding, you know, all hell is breaking loose in the the payload area of the the C seventeen. He crawls in there into the dark to try to find this valve and open it and release it. So that's one. The second failure point was if that rocket ultimately hadn't launched a few weeks later successfully, they would have failed. And then finally, they would have failed at the end of 2008 if they hadn't got this large amount of money from NASA to develop the commercial resupply missions that ultimately led to the cargo dragon supply missions to the space station.
0: You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Eric Berger. He's a journalist and author of the new book, Liftoff, Elon Musk, and the desperate early days that launched SpaceX. Our conversation about these early days and how the company's early struggles are driving the current development of SpaceX's Starship continues after the break. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're talking with journalist and author Eric Berger about his new book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. The, The book focuses on the development and launch of Falcon 1, which is SpaceX's first orbital rocket. Um, it had two successful missions into orbit before SpaceX moved on to Falcon 9, kind of abruptly, um, as it's written in the book. How much of the Falcon 1 development went into the more familiar Falcon 9 system that we're used to seeing today?
2: Yeah, they, they dropped the Falcon 1 pretty quickly after they got the development contract from NASA for the Falcon 9. I think it was two reasons. One, there wasn't that much of a market at the time for dedicated small satellite launches, um, and two, Elon was always thinking bigger. And so when the opportunity to build a bigger rocket came along, he seized it. Now, they learned a lot of enormously valuable lessons from the Falcon 1. Most notably, they, they got the Merlin 1C rocket engine developed. So they went through a couple of iterations of that and ended up with a pretty good engine that was shipped right over from the Falcon 1 and put into the Falcon 9 where there were nine of them. And the engineers, Tom Muller, Tim Buzz, other people told me that based upon all of their challenges. And they had many challenges <laughs> with the Merlin engine that when they finally got it to the Falcon nine, it was a pretty mature. And so they had the most important part of the rocket ready to go. It was a matter of sort of figuring out how to integrate nine of them together and build a bigger version of the the Falcon one and the Falcon t- to make the Falcon nine. So, so they had, they had gone through a lot of growing pains. You know, they spent six years going from the beginning of the company to launching the Falcon Um, one into orbit, they spent about three years on the Falcon 9 program in terms of getting it to orbit. So they really were able to compress that time. Uh,
0: Reading about these early days of SpaceX, Eric, I can't help but draw the parallels to the development of Starship happening in Texas. Um, I know you spent quite a bit of time out there um, watching that hardware uh, come together. How much of that early DNA of SpaceX and the Falcon one is at play in Boca Chica and, and the development of, of starship
2: it's definitely ingrained in the company the Elon set the set the tone for SpaceX early on um, his first vice presidents picked that up and ran with it and and it, it just sort of spread through the company and so that Falcon 1 DNA as you say is very much at play in, in, in South Texas with the starship program and there are other parallels as well. You know, they're able to move as fast as they possibly can, well almost as fast when when the FAA is not saying, hey, wait, wait a minute. Um, but when they when they were when they were working on Kwajalein, you know, they were they were dealing with the army restrictions on the range there, and the army was pretty permissive. And they they basically had carte blanche on Almalek Island where they were launching from in that atoll. To do what they want, and it's similar in South Texas. They can iterate and test and go almost as fast at, at the speed that they want to go. So th- that's similarity. The difference is back in the Falcon One days, it was literally a few dozen engineers designing, building, and scrounging together this hardware. So They were all doing many, many jobs and trying to make this rocket go. And now with the Starship program, you know if Elon needs to hire 200 welders in a weekend, he can hire 200 welders in a weekend. Or if he needs to bring dozens of engineers into Boca Chica, you know he can have a hiring fair and and make that happen. So the resources now are, you know, that's why you see them building six Starships at a time in Boca Chica because all of a sudden Elon Musk isn't a struggling millionaire; he's a you know kind of this global celebrity. One of the richest people in the world, and so he can, he can really make things happen with much greater, much greater resources on a big, on a much bigger scale.
0: In the end, SpaceX accomplished what it set out to do: lower the cost of of access to space. You know, where the industry once scoffed at some of their ideas, aerospace players are now rushing to catch up with this. I'm wondering, though, Eric, what happens if SpaceX didn't succeed? I mean, what kind of world would we live in if that RatSat flight didn't make it to orbit? What would the aerospace industry look like today without SpaceX?
2: I think, first of all, it would be a lot more boring because for whatever you think about Elon Musk, maybe you don't like some of the controversial things he says on Twitter, or maybe you think he's, you know, this world changing, awesome bro, right? Um, He is interesting um, and he shakes things up and he is forever sort of pushing NASA and everyone else to go faster and further. Um, I think what SpaceX really has been is a forcing function um, across the industry, it's, it's forced ULA to try to be more nimble and move more quickly. And because they were successful 12 years ago with the Falcon one, and then sort of, we've seen what's happened over the last decade. A number of other companies have found it much easier to go out and get capital that they need from the private markets to to do To do small launch or to do orbital manufacturing or to do small space stations it's it's, it's it's really sort of laid a foundation for other companies to go to the private capital markets and say, "Hey, look, we can become the next SpaceX um, because our technology XYZ that kind of thing so they've made it more dynamic, more interesting. you know I think a counterweight to that would be you know look at what 's happened to Blue Origin. This is another company. Founded by someone who's very wealthy, Jeff Bezos, um, and similar goals like like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have both looked at sort of what it would take to get lots of humans living and working in space, and said, "Well, the first step is low cost, reusable launch." And so they both des- developed big rockets that you know land off offshore, um, Falcon Heavy and Starship for SpaceX and New Glenn for for Blue Origin, but. You know, look back at—I like to look back to the end of 2015 for that question, Brendan, because that was the time when when Blue Origin landed New Shepard for the first time um, in West Texas successfully, and then a few months later, SpaceX landed the Falcon 9 for the first time successfully along the coast of Florida. You know, that's almost—that's—that's that's a little more than five years ago now. So over that time, Blue Origin has kind of acted like a traditional space company. Um, They've, they've gone out, they've tried to win some contracts, they've spent that time working on New Glenn, they've flown New Shepard about a dozen times, right? And then they're, they're working on a human landing system. In those five years, SpaceX has launched nearly 100 orbital rockets. They've made enormous strides in reuse, having flown some of their rockets as much as eight times. Um, they've become the world's largest satellite operator uh, they've developed a second-generation cargo dragon. They've developed a crew dragon that can take people to space. They've developed the Falcon Heavy rocket. They've made big progress in the Starship program, having flown that vehicle on test flights almost half a dozen times. I mean, so, and this is not to denigrate Blue Origin. This is just to show how dynamic SpaceX has been over the last decade. And, and now how we, in the space community, look at it and say, well, you know what was happening with the space shuttle program or maybe the space launch system like that's how it had always been done and and we we could look back and marvel at these big vehicles doing great things for nasa but but damn it those programs were really slow and they were really expensive and now spacex has shown another way and i think it's it's caused the rest of the industry to really try to step up its game and so it's been really healthy i think
0: Finally, Eric, you've been covering space for quite some time, um, and and with this book, you've you've had some unprecedented access to these early staff members and and uh, conversations with Elon Musk. I'm wondering if there's anything from reporting this book out or, or writing this book that that stuck with you or 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 surprised you from someone who has been following this for as long as you have.
2: You know, I think what I think what did ultimately surprise me the most is is the role that that Elon actually played in SpaceX. Because you're always wondering with these companies, you know, is this, is this person just the visionary? Is this person just writing the checks? You know, how integral are they to the success of their company? And this is not to lionize Elon Musk, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you go back and talk to the earliest people who worked for him. You know, he was in most of those engineering meetings. He was the one who was helping to make the most difficult calls. Like the buck literally stopped with him. You know, when the, when the second rocket failed, this was in um, March of 2007, second flight of the Falcon 1 rocket. It was due to a problem with, you know, fluid moving around in the upper stage and causing it to spin out of control. And that problem had come to Elon as one of the risks for the flight And he'd signed off on it, this slosh problem. And so he got very angry after the first flight because of a propulsion problem. But after the second flight, it was something he had, you know, he had seen the data and signed off on it. And so he, he didn't, you know, there was much less of a backlash. Like it was put your heads down, let's get to work and sort of, you know, figure this problem out. So like, you know from in, from just you know providing the vision of funding yes he did that but he also was helping to make the hardest engineering decisions and you know he was there every day making the key hires and and finding ways to motivate his people and move them forward and so you know the success of SpaceX is due to the people he hired but it's also just due to deep involvement by by Elon at every at every step of the way. And 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 one of the things I try to do with Liftoff is really show examples in which you know in which that was the case that that he provided this this pressure to keep them moving forward and ultimately succeed.
0: It really is an intimate and inspiring uh, recap of, of those early days of SpaceX. The book is Liftoff, Elon Musk, and the desperate early days that launched SpaceX. It's out this week. Uh, We've been speaking by the book's author and senior space editor at Ars Technica, Eric
2: Berger. Eric, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Brendan. Thank you very much.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to follow Eric on Twitter. He's at SciGuySpace, and look for his book, Liftoff, Elon Musk, in the Desperate Early Days that launched SpaceX wherever you purchase your books these days. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR1, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? It's a production of WMFE America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.